The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. All right, let's uh, go ahead and just get into the message tonight as we look into God's Word. And this evening I have two passages that I'd like you to look up and keep your finger in. And that is Luke chapter 10, verse number 22, and then also Acts chapter 16, verse 14. And you remember that the key text for our study is Matthew 16, 18, and that's where Jesus told his disciples that he would build his church and the gates of hell would not prevail against it. That's a verse about perpetuity, and that is the basis of our study of church history. And that's the reason that as we have studied church history for those uh, 2,000 years of the history, you can always find a true church of the Lord Jesus Christ in every era. It's why that we have the Berean Baptist Church here today, and that's why I'm able to speak to you in this sermon tonight. And so Matthew 16, 18 is the basis, but I'd like to look at these two other scriptures as uh, our subject is really now talking about Baptist beliefs and how we have arrived at some of the conclusions of theology that we hold today. Now, there, there has been a change in theology, and that's what we're talking about. Uh, for 1,800 years, the church held to some very basic core doctrines of the faith, and we held those with thorough consistency. Uh, I mentioned a few weeks ago that we can't vouch for every doctrine that our forefathers held because the church has been made up of imperfect people, and so people are not always correct in their doctrine, and people can be very confused about doctrine. And it so happens that we're living in a time where there is a lot of confusion, and there are practices by Baptists that are neither biblical nor historical. They don't have a foundation in Scripture or history. And I believe that what we have to do is to recognize the errors and we have to point out those errors and, errors and draw people back to the theological roots and the doctrines that our Baptist forefathers have believed for so many years. And I realize that as we do this that it might be uncomfortable for some people. There may be some things that, that uh, you have been taught one way and I'm telling you something different and you have been entrenched in the old ways and, well, what I believe is the old way, actually. But you've been entrenched with whatever doctrines that you've heard and you haven't seen fit to question those things because you thought that they were right. And there are some people that are so set in their doctrine that whenever I mention one of the things that we've been talking about here, their minds close like a steel trap. They're just not going to listen to these doctrines. But I think the best thing for us to do is to keep an open mind uh, to... Uh, let it be taught and uh, to evaluate it. Just listen, and if you have a difference of opinion, and if you have a good reason for that, and you want to discuss that, there's no one that's happier than I am to sit down and talk doctrine with people, so I, in, I invite you to do that. So what I've decided to do is that we're, we're looking into, especially or particularly, one movement that has influenced Baptist people in recent history. 
And that's the period of revivalism in the 19th century. And that has really had profound lasting effects upon Baptist churches. And so over the first, first, last 150 years, uh, revivalism has affected us. And we've just started, or many Baptist churches are just now starting to turn around and see some of the errors that were introduced 150 years ago. Now, revivalism was not a Baptist movement, although it did become a Baptist movement when it was, after it was first introduced in the 19th century. But Baptists have embraced it and have kept many of its practices alive. Now, before I get to those two texts that, that I mentioned to you, you might want to note on your listening sheet, if you haven't done already, that the period of church history that we are talking about is the period of revivalism. And this a period was inaugurated by the preaching of Charles Finney, who was basically a Pelagian heretic. And perhaps the greatest mystery concerning Charles Finney is that he has, has influenced so many Baptists. He, he has uh, affected many of the things that we do. And how that he ever came to be revered by Baptists and be influenced by him when he didn't believe the cardinal doctrines of the Christian faith is perhaps one of the greatest mysteries that I have to get into my own mind is why and why did that actually happen and I think really you ought to think about that too Paul taught in the book of Romans that we are justified by the imputation of the righteousness of Christ but Charles Finney taught that justification on the account of Christ's righteousness being given to us is a myth he said that couldn't possibly happen the Bible teaches the substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ, that he came to die for our sins, that he was our place on the, as a substitute on the cross of Calvary. And Charles Finney said, that's not true. He disputed the penal nature of substitution. That means that someone else could actually be punished for your sins. Charles Finney taught that we are not born depraved sinners. He taught that men are not sinners by birth. And so you wonder, how is it that a man like Finney could ever convince a Baptist that he was a great soul winner and that his method for winning souls could be any better than the rest of his heretical theology? How is that possible? And the proof that he was not a soul winner is not in the mass conversions that he had, but was in the mass fallout. But nevertheless, it is the tactics of Finney that have been adopted as staples in many Baptist churches today. Now, interestingly, Finney believed that man was not so radically depraved that he couldn't make an uninfluenced decision for Christ. And so he believed that if an evangelist could play on the intellect, if he could use certain persuasive techniques, then he would be able to convince a person to believe in Jesus Christ. Now, that is the subject for tonight, and that's letter C on your listening sheet. We began this last week, and that is decisional regeneration. Now, I'd like you to look at the two verses of Scripture that I gave you. First is Luke 10:22, which says, All things, just as Jesus speaking, all things are delivered to me of my Father, and no man knoweth who the Son is but the Father. And who the Father is, but the Son, and he to whom the Son will reveal him. So Jesus said, nobody knows who the Father is. You can't understand who the Father is. The only one that can reveal the Father to you is the Son, and that is Jesus Christ. Then in Acts 16:14, the verse that we spent quite a bit of time on last week, 
And a certain woman named Lydia, a seller of purple of the city of Thyatira, which worshipped God, heard us, whose heart the Lord opened, that she attended unto the things which were spoken of Paul. There it tells us that the Lord opened Lydia's heart. Now both of those verses, the one in Luke and here in Acts, these are about regeneration. That it is the Holy Spirit of God who opens up the heart to reveal Christ and that Christ is the revelation of the Father. It's not our powers of persuasion that are able to open up a sinner's heart. It requires a supernatural power and that is the power and is the work of God. And that's because not only is the heart darkened by the uh, natural depravity of man, but it's also darkened by a supernatural power, and that is the work of Satan. So people are not only affected by the fact that they're born sinners, but they're also affected in their rejection of Christ by Satan, who actively works against us to keep our eyes, our minds blinded to the truth. This is what 2 Corinthians 4 says. But if our gospel be hid, it is hid to them that are lost, in whom the God of this world had blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. And so this would tell us that there is no preacher that can convince a person who is in the grip of Satan that he ought to change his mind and come to belief in Christ. Faith is not an inherent ability of man. Not like Finney taught. Finney taught that a person could have faith that arises within himself. He doesn't need the work of the Holy Spirit to convince him. But that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says that we are radically depraved. Every part of our being through and through is depraved. And Satan uses that depravity against us. And so the only way that the gospel is going to shine into the heart through the darkness is that God should give us faith. And the Holy Spirit does that in conjunction with the preaching of the word. He opens the heart and turns it towards Christ. He opens up the heart for the reception of the gospel. And so regeneration is not caused by any kind of tactical maneuvers or the manipulations of the preacher. Now, in the last message, we... We talked about biblical regeneration, and I, and I spent some time with that because we really do have to understand what regeneration is before we can see how things went so terribly wrong, how that we got so confused about the doctrine of regeneration. Now, what we're going to do tonight is to look at the other side of it, and that is what is one of these, one of the false forms of regeneration that has crept into Baptist churches? And the answer to that question is decisional regeneration. That is an unbiblical form of regeneration. And yet that's been the scheme in many Baptist churches for over 100 years. Now I want to modify my statement just a little bit on that. Because when Finney first started teaching this back in the early 19th century, there were many, most Baptists and probably all Baptists, that thoroughly rejected that, recognizing that it was not the truth of the Word of God. But Finney was getting results. There were people that looked like they were making decisions. They were coming to Christ. And over time, through the influence of Finney, and then later, by the influence of Dwight Moody, and then carrying on into the 20th century under the influence of Billy Sunday and Billy Graham, it became entrenched in Baptist churches. And most of those men that I just mentioned are now heroes among Baptist people. Now, decisional regeneration <clears throat> anchors 
the program in many Baptist churches to the point that manipulating decisions, trying to get professions of faith, actually becomes the focus of the preaching. And when I say that it's an anchor, I mean that in two ways. I have a double meaning for that. When Jesus spoke, he often spoke with double meanings, and I have a double meaning for this. That decisional regeneration is a touchstone, if you will. It's a, it's a doctrine that holds certain fellowships of Baptists together. It's an anchor uh, in which the, the practice is to try and win souls in any way possible. And maybe better said, I should say, get professions in any way possible. And the mentality is that the end justifies the means. So we do everything, anything we want. It's anchored to the tactics of men like Finney who believe that by hook or crook, the thing that you need to do is to get people to make decisions for Christ. The second way that I use that word anchored is a little bit more ominous. And that is that this teaching is an anchor that sinks the gospel of Jesus Christ. Rather than being a life preserver that lifts a sinner out of the morass, that lifts him out of the the sea of sin, it actually is a weight, is an anchor that pulls him down with false hopes and will doom that person's soul to hell forever. Now Charles Finney, though dead, speaketh, and the proof of that is supposedly 500 people that were supposed to be converts that were made in his revivals under his methods And yet even he admitted that the majority of those people were never regenerated. So as a reminder from last week, regeneration is a sovereign act of the Holy Spirit of God in which he brings a dead sinner to life. And that's actually the sole purpose of the Holy Spirit beginning to work in us. It's to bring bring us regeneration and bring us to the place of repentance and faith. So that none who are regenerated refuse the call of the Holy Spirit and none who are regenerated will ever fall away. Now, the Holy Spirit does his work above our comprehension. He secures voluntary obedience to the gospel. Now, for a more complete statement on that, if you weren't here last week, I think most of you were, but a more complete statement is found in our article number 7 of the Statement of Faith, and you might want to read that. So what is the error of decisional regeneration? Well, let me say first that it follows a pattern of perversion that goes all the way back to the very earliest times of church history. The way that a person is regenerated is one of the first doctrines of the church that Satan perverted. It's the one error that has caused more angst, aside from mistakes about justification by faith alone, This one doctrine that's caused more problems than any other is that people can be regenerated by the act of baptism. Now that was the first error about regeneration. It was baptismal regeneration, and that's an error that still persists in churches today. Now in the 19th century, in the early part of Charles Spurgeon's ministry, he preached a message against baptismal regeneration, and it turns out that that was the most published sermon that he ever preached. And he preached against it because it perverted the doctrine of Christ, it perverted the doctrine of regeneration and salvation by putting salvation into the hands of men, and it does that in two ways. First, the recipient of baptism has to do something himself. There, There is an act of submission, there is an act of getting himself motivated to get to the waters of baptism, 
And of course that piece of it is removed in infant baptism which actually makes things worse. And that's because the second error that's involved here is the error that regeneration is sacerdotal. Uh, you might remember sacerdotalism from our earlier study of the church. Of the church. Sacerdotalism is actually the performance of priests. That in order for you to be saved, you have to have a priest that, do, that does part of the work for you. And so the absence of a priest, the absence of a, an administrator with baptism, means that you would have the absence of salvation. And so partly at least, your salvation is dependent upon the person who is actually able to perform that baptism for you. And in the Roman Catholic Church, of course, they would teach this, that a priest is necessary, that your regeneration is going to come at the hands of a priest. Now, with infants, uh, I said this becomes that much worse because an infant can't do anything for himself at all. So his salvation is totally in the hands of another person, and that would be the priest. Well, baptismal regeneration is a a man-made system of salvation, but no less is the doctrine of decisional regeneration. Now, in decisional regeneration, the Holy Spirit is passive. Now, I know that many of these people that believe this would never say that. Well, they would say, absolutely, you have to have the work of the Holy Spirit. But they also teach that the Holy Spirit can be rejected. That his influence is not a saving influence because the decision to become a Christian is the person's alone. That nothing that the Holy Spirit does would actually secure salvation for him. And so salvation is in the hands of man and not in the hands of God. And then secondly, decisional regeneration is also sacerdotal because it depends upon the skills of a preacher with his persuasion to get a person to change from his unbelief to belief. And so he may use his tear-jerking story at the end of a sermon. He may use his tricky methods to close your eyes and bow your head, hold up your hand and all of those things, which is an action that sets the mind in motion that you have to do something. Something has to be done. Now, I'm going to talk about invitation tactics at a later time, but let me just give you a, give you a little bit of a taste of this now, that there is no hint in the New Testament of that that the practice, there was no practice like it for 1,800 years of church history. For 1,800 years, no one ever sang a verse of just as I am at the end of a sermon. Nobody had to sing just as I am for people to get saved. But now, if you come to the end of a church service and there isn't any begging and pleading, then that church is considered to be a non-evangelistic church. Now, When the preacher becomes the one who opens a sinner's heart, that's when regeneration becomes sacerdotal. And you can tell when a preacher has that objective in mind because what he will do, he'll start to deploy his tactical weapons to try and convince people about salvation. Now, let me say this before... You all don't look too panicked, but there are some people, I talk like this, and they would get very panicked about this. But there, there are some people that are much worse about this than others. There are some churches that are wholly geared in that direction. They have become completely derailed about their manipulations and their tactics in order to get someone to make a profession of faith in Christ. But then there are others that use the invitation, and it's not, I mean, they're really not thinking about... Um, 
anything other than just bringing people to a true realization that Jesus Christ is the Savior. And they're not interested in, in this because they're keeping some kind of a statistic and of all the moves that are made and all the people that have come to the front, all the decisions as, as just a list of, of uh, names that they can compare at the next preacher's meeting. I mean, they may be very sincere about it. So I'm not really trying to attack them. I'm not really trying to attack anybody. I'm just trying to point out here that the tactics that are used are not biblical and they are not historical. Now to help you understand a little bit of what I'm talking about, to understand better, I want you to turn to Revelation 3 and verse number 20. Revelation 3 verse 20. And this is practically the golden text for people who believe in decisional regeneration. Revelation 3 verse 20, and you'll recognize it. It says, Behold, I stand at the door. This is Jesus. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come into him and will sup with him and he with me. Now there it said that the picture we have of Jesus Christ knocking on the door of the sinner's heart and he's begging and he's pleading for the sinner to open the door. Now there's a famous picture of this in which Jesus is standing outside of a door and he knocks and there is no doorknob on the outside of the door. There's no way for Jesus to turn the knob and to enter. Now I have this picture for you tonight and you'll recognize this, I'm sure. And I copied some information from a website that was describing what you see here. Actually, they were describing the painting. Uh, they are trying to sell the paintings, and they're trying to describe what takes place here. So this is what it says. The barely concealed heart produced by the luminance of Christ in the frame of the doorway convey Christ's call to the soul ensnared in thistles of sin and the darkness of ignorance and willfulness. Yet, as promotional literature points out, all is not hopeless, for there is an opening of grill work in the door revealing the darkness within, so that the individual may see who is at the door and see that he is good and kind. For American Protestants, whose spirituality is premised on the acceptance of a call and born-again experience and its subsequent testimonial, this image articulates a central theological principle and it served to commemorate such experiences. For others, the image offers assurance of Christ's benevolent yet persistent love. Still others interpret the image in terms of the freedom of the will. A Lutheran clergyman admires the painting because the absence of any outside doorknob or latch on the door indicates that one must open one's heart to Christ from within. He will not force his way inside. Now notice that last sentence again. One must open one's heart to Christ from within. He will not force his way inside. And that is a characteristic, a characteristic, complete misunderstanding of the Holy Spirit's work in regeneration. Now it's true that Christ will not force his way inside. But he doesn't have to. And that's because... The Holy Spirit has already done the preparatory work. The Holy Spirit has already opened up the heart. And that's what Acts 16, 14 says. Now, let me, let me just, um, I hadn't actually intended to go into this, but I think I should mention it for you, that when you read Revelation 3.20, you don't want to be confused that it is actually talking about the sinner. 
Acts, or rather Revelation 3.20, is at the end of the two chapters that deal with the seven churches of Asia. And Jesus is talking ostensibly to save people. It's the church. He's not talking about entering into a, into a sinner's heart. He's talking about entering into the church to enjoy fellowship with a, with a church that, that lives the way he wants it to live and, and wants to have fellowship with him as a true church of his and obey his commandments. It's not even talking about the sinner at all. But this is the way that it's used. But there's a couple things we ought to notice about this and, and that is, first of all, that never in Scripture is the heart described as a door. Jesus doesn't stand outside a door trying to get in. This is what Jesus said, I am the door. If any man, by me, if any man enter in, he shall be saved and shall go in and out and find pasture. And did you know this, that never in any scripture in the Bible is it said that we are to invite Jesus to come into our heart? We don't accept Jesus into our heart. He accepts us and we enter in through him. So if Jesus ever stood outside of a door and begged and begged and begged to get in, that door would never be opened. Because the Holy Spirit is the one who must prepare the heart and that's when sinners come in. Now, I've heard variations of the theme. I heard one preacher say that Christ is a gentleman. He'll never force his way in where he's not wanted. And it would seem strange we'd have to say that at all because the scripture says no one wants Christ. No one understands. No one seeks him. So we don't really have to worry about Christ entering in where he's not wanted. Nobody wants him. Romans 8, 6, and 7 that we read last week For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace because the carnal mind is enmity. Remember, that's hostility. The carnal man mind is hostility against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. Another person said, God wants us to love him because we want to. That a forced love is not a real love. Well, these are people that don't actually have a clue to the real condition of the human heart. What does the Bible say? The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. And so you tell me how a heart like that is capable of real love. The only thing that people love is self. And according to scripture, a self-love is as wicked as hell itself. Now, I don't know if you're familiar with this person, but uh, he wrote a book that, that had to do with this very issue and the title of his book is What Love Is This? And that was a book that was written by Dave Hunt. He's dead now, but Dave Hunt didn't believe in things we preach here. He didn't believe in election, didn't believe in predestination, didn't believe in effectual grace. He didn't believe in the work of the Holy Spirit as we do. He was a good man in many respects, but he rejected all of these things that I'm talking about to you tonight. And he's one who said that, well, Christ is not going to force us to love him. He doesn't, he wants us to love him because we want to. We just don't want to, folks. We don't have the ability to love him. Not until the Holy Spirit regenerates us. And then there's another variation I've heard that says, well, everything that Christ is going to do has been done. And the only thing that's left is for you to make a decision to come to Christ. Well, if that's true, then who saves you? If Christ has done all that he's going to do and he's not going to do any more, and yet you're not saved then how are you going to get saved? Well, the answer to the question is, you get saved by the decision. 
And that is nothing but classical decisional regeneration. And so the idea in that is, is, is that the decision is determinative, that you decide whether or not Christ is going to save you, that he's done the best that he can possibly do. Now you take it or leave it, but you have to come, you have to make a decision, and that is nothing but pure classical decisional regeneration. Now we have to ask then, and this is often asked to me when we teach these kinds of things, People will say, well, is there no decision to be made? Do we not make a decision at all? Are we passive when it comes to salvation so we make no decision? Well, it actually gets a little bit more complicated from this point. Uh, The answer to it is yes, that we are passive in regeneration, but no, we are not passive in our conversion. People must decide for Christ. And we believe that they must. We've always taught that. Yes, there is a decision to be made. You must decide for Christ. And all of you are aware, if you are a believer tonight, that at some point you did make a decision to repent of your sins and place your faith in Jesus Christ. Now, I want to... uh, I want you to condition yourselves to say that you receive Christ rather than accept him. Christ accepts us and he accepts us because of the imputation of his own righteousness and we receive him. So the answer to this part of it is yes, you do make a decision. But when I preach about this, I'm never going to leave you any indication that the decision that you make for Christ is anything other than a direct, effectual movement of the Holy Spirit. Christ is not done, and the Holy Spirit is not done until you believe. And so instead of writing a book that's titled, Done, the title of the book ought to be, Done When You Believe. Because that's what Christ and the Holy Spirit are doing. So what we never want to do is to present salvation as an intellectual decision to believe. And that's why I preach the doctrines of grace. I preach it uh, because in principle, decisional regeneration denies at least part of the doctrines of grace. It certainly denies the effectual call of the Holy Spirit in regeneration. So that's one of the things that Finney denied. One of the heroes of fundamentalism, Billy Sunday, denied that. Billy Graham denies that. And that's the company that you keep when you go off on regeneration into decisional regeneration. Now, another of the unbiblical methods that's used in decisional regeneration is the sinner's prayer. Now, you need to hear me out on this one before you get bent out of shape if you're prone to do that. I know that there are many of you that were converted and some type of a sinner's prayer was involved in that. And I do know that there are places in Scripture where you can find a sinner's prayer. For instance, Luke 18, 10 through 13. Two men went up into the temple to pray, the one a Pharisee and the other a publican. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank thee that I am not as other men are, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this publican. I fast twice in the week, I give tithes of all that I possess. And the publican, standing afar off, would not lift up so much as his eyes unto heaven, but smote upon his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Now there you actually have two sinners' prayers. You have a sinner who didn't believe that he was a sinner, and he prayed. And then you have another sinner who prayed, who said, I'm not even worthy to lift up my eyes to you. In Acts chapter 8, verse number 20, 
But Peter said unto him, Thy money perish with thee, because thou hast thought that the gift of God may be purchased with money. Thou hast neither part nor lot in this matter, for thy heart is not right in the sight of God. Repent therefore of this thy wickedness, and pray God, if perhaps the thought of thine heart may be forgiven thee. For I perceive that thou art in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. Now those are sinners' prayers. But those aren't the kind of prayers that I'm talking about. There is a formulaic prayer that's used that, that people are told that if they will repeat the prayer, then the person who has them repeat the prayer has the license to tell them that they are saved and then hand them their assurance card and then head over to the next door and get the next repeat after me. So it's the repetition of the prayer that matters. And there isn't really any attention that's paid to a true conversion of the sinner's heart. Now, some of those types of conversions are made at a door in soul-winning attempts. Some of them are right, made right on the front pew of a church where a person comes forward and they're told to repeat a sinner's prayer and then they're pronounced that they're saved. And those kinds of prayers are made as if the Holy Spirit didn't even exist. Now, let me... Let me make this point to you and, and it might surprise you but there is not one instance in scripture where anyone used the sinner's prayer in evangelism now we're going to see this a little bit later uh, but, uh, but I'll just mention this that there also are no church services in scripture where anyone was ever told to come to the front of the church now is that a bad practice is it necessarily bad well, no, not, not if you're going to take the time to deal with people thoroughly and explain and make sure that they understand. But it's just like I was telling you at the end of the service this morning that people don't have to move an inch to be saved. It's not about your location. It's not up here, back there, or wherever. You don't have to move an inch to be saved. It's not about your movement. It's about what takes place in your heart. Now, let me give you give you the, uh, the Joel Osteen version of the sinner's prayer. This is a quote from the end of one of his services. He says, we never like to close our broadcast without giving you the opportunity to make Jesus the Lord of your life. Would you pray this prayer with me? Lord Jesus, I repent of my sin. Come into my heart. I will make you the Lord of my life. Friends, if you prayed that simple prayer, we believe you got born again. Get into a Bible-based church and keep God first place in your life. Now, the fellow that tells you this is the same one who said that Mormons believe in the same Lord Jesus Christ and love the same Lord Jesus Christ as he does. Now, we kind of bristle at the closing of Joel Osteen because if you've ever listened to him, you know that the whole sermon before this, he's never said anything about the Lord Jesus Christ. And so you wonder why it is, and nothing he's, he's, he's got is based on him, so you wonder why it is that he comes down to the end of the service and he tacks Jesus on the end. And he says, pray this prayer, and we believe that you got born again. Now, we bristle at that because we know, well, that doesn't sound right. He doesn't talk about Jesus. But unfortunately, it's essentially the same thing that happens at the end of many Baptist services. Now, there might be a message that talks about Jesus, but the truth is we are unable to lead people in prayers that will regenerate them. 
He says that if you pray this prayer, you'll be born again. You will be regenerated. But we are unable to lead people in prayers that will regenerate them because a prayer never regenerated anybody. Now, one person has said there are sinners and there are prayers. There are sinners praying and prayers by sinners. But there is no official sinner's prayer in the Bible. Well, again, we have to ask questions. Is there anything wrong with praying, Lord Jesus, I'm a sinner. I repent of my sins and I believe you died to save me. Please be the Lord of my life. Is there anything wrong with that prayer? No. Nothing wrong with the prayer at all. What's wrong is when the soul winner says to the person who prays the prayer, if you prayed that prayer, you got born again. And the problem is this whole thing that we've been talking about here, that there's something to be done that affects regeneration. But regeneration is something that God does by himself. That's, a whole, that's an act of the holy sovereign God. Prayers are not a reason for being born again. There is no reason. We're born again, we're regenerated before the prayer, which is before repentance and faith. And we can't do anything to be born again any more than a baby can do anything to give him physical birth. I mean, this is exactly why that Jesus chose a birth of a baby to be the symbolism of regeneration. And that's because you can't do anything. Nobody can do anything to be born. So it's not the action that we do that regenerates us. Now understand, you have to understand, when we talk about regeneration, that's a difference between regeneration and conversion. Salvation is the whole picture here. Salvation is all the way from eternity past, then goes into our our election, our regeneration, our repentance, our faith, our sanctification, all of that, our justification, all of that is involved in our salvation But our regeneration, where our eyes are opened up to the gospel of Christ, that is a singular act of God alone. So you don't pray a person into regeneration. And a person can't pray himself into regeneration. It can't happen. It's not based upon an action that we do. And so I remind you again of what we've taught, is that repentance and faith are the fruits of regeneration. It's not a decision. It's not a prayer. It's not opening the door of the heart. None of that has any place in the interpretation of Scripture. We are born again, regenerated by the Holy Spirit of God, which is expressed when that happens in repentance and faith. And that, putting that order on it, is the only way that God is sovereign in salvation and removes all room for us to boast. Now, there are various effects that decisional regeneration has on the way that we conduct our services. Last week, I told you that it has an effect on theology. It alters the, the reason for regeneration by changing the ordo salutis. Now, I didn't mention the terms ordo salutis last week. That's simply Latin for order of salvation. But I did tell you what it meant last week. The ordo salutis is this. Which comes first? Is it repentance and faith and regeneration? Or is it regeneration than repentance and faith. Now, decisional regeneration teaches the former. Biblical regeneration teaches the latter. And so we could say, well, this is then detrimental to the theology of salvation. Now, at the heart of the whole question is the, is the spiritual state of man. Is he dead in trespasses and sin, or is he sick? Is he dead 
Or is there still some kind of a spiritual life preserver that keeps him alive? Is there any such thing as being half dead or three-quarter dead? Well, as far as I know, there isn't an intermediary step between death and life. You're either dead or you're alive. And if you believe in an intermediate step between death and life, then yes, I would say, well, then maybe it's possible. You can resuscitate a lost man and you can bring him to Christ because he's still got spiritual life. But that's not what the Bible says. If you believe that dead is dead, then only God can bring dead people to life. So I think we've covered the theological consequences of that quite extensively. But there are actually a couple or three more consequences that... Are, that come about because of decisional regeneration. I'd like to cover those, but I don't have time to do it tonight. So I'm just going to give you one more of these. Uh, this morning I told you, I, maybe that was in form class, I can't remember, maybe in form class, I said, uh, you know, these are, these are some things that are going to hurt some folks. You're not going to like what I have to say, but uh, I have to talk about these things. So there's a couple of things, and here, here's one of them, and that is the change that's happened to preaching. That there is a different style of preaching for those who believe in decisional regeneration. Most of you, I think, have probably heard of Jack Hiles. Jack Hiles died in 2001, but he influenced thousands of preachers during his 50 years or so of ministry. Uh, There are still thousands of people that he influences because there are ministries that are actually for the purpose of keeping the memory of Jack Hiles alive. In fact, I, I read this actually in one of, their, one of these papers that I received that there was a, one particular church that said, here is the purpose of our church. It is to keep the memory of Jack Hiles alive. I thought that's kind of strange. I think a purpose of my church would be to talk about Jesus Christ and the truth of the gospel of Christ. But their purpose was to keep the memory of Jack Hiles alive. Well, I'm not going to go into the multiple issues that we could about Um, about his ministry, including the moral failures and all of that. But I do want to talk about his methods in the area of decisional regeneration. Now, he was a hero to many fundamental preachers. They learned from him. They mimicked him, even right down to the use of the very same illustrations that he used in his sermons. They, they, They loved Jack Hiles. For 37 years, he conducted preacher schools. Every year there was a pastor's school and and men from all over the world came to hear the wisdom of Jack Hiles. And he was considered to be an authority on how to preach and how to conduct, conduct invitations, how to get people to walk aisles, how to get people down to the front of the church to make decisions. That's kind of interesting. Um, A few months ago I I have a preacher friend who, who was disagreeing with another preacher at a conference And his comment was, I've never heard such theological silliness since the last time I attended attended pastor school in Hammond, Indiana. And that's where Jack Hiles was preaching. Well, anyway, Hiles was this big proponent of decisional regeneration. In fact, he might have been the biggest that that there ever was. So what did that do to his preaching style? Well, here is the advice that he gave to pastors. Many of us in our preaching will make such statements as, Now, in conclusion, finally may I say, my last point is, these statements are sometimes dangerous. The sinner knows five minutes before you finish. Hence, he digs in and prepares himself for the invitation so that he does not respond. However, if your closing is abrupt and a lost person does not suspect 
that you are about finished, you have crept up on him and he'll not have time to prepare himself for the invitation. Many people may be reached using this method. That's actually in one of his books about getting people to Christ. Now, do you understand what he's saying there? He's saying that sinners are won by tactics. That the thing that you have to do is to catch them unaware. You have to trick them into believing before they actually understand what's actually happening to them. That's taking regeneration above our comprehension to a whole different level, folks. When we talk about the Holy Spirit working above our comprehension, well, Jack Hiles has taken it to a whole different level. So the preaching method is changed and the method is made to appeal to the sinner that's changed because the preacher has just injected himself into the regeneration process. Now you might get a lot of decisions that way, but you're not going to get regenerated people. If that person's heart has not been opened up by the preaching of the gospel and by the Holy Spirit, then you can go into stealth mode all that you want and you're not going to get people saved. Now, when I, when I preach this, there are sometimes people, you listening tonight, I can see some of you just incredible at this. I mean, you, you see that quote. Well, did we have it on the screen? Yeah, we got it on the screen. That, that you see that quote and you're just, just, you can't believe it. Who would possibly do something like this? I mean, am I way off base here to say that that kind of thing is actually done in churches, in Baptist churches? Am I way off base in saying that? And the truth of the matter is, you wouldn't have to go very far to find this very thing going on. In fact, you wouldn't have had to leave Berean Baptist Church. Just a few years ago, the tactics of Jack Hiles were used in this church to try to get people to come to Christ. Now that leads me to other effects and um, decisional regeneration has a few others of those on Baptist but I'm going to leave that. We'll come back to it next time. Revivalism was a whole new ball game. Revivalism changed things. It changed theology. It changed methodology. It changed homiletics. You don't understand homiletics. That means preaching, that's what we call the art of preaching, that's homiletics. It changed that. And you don't have to trust me on that. All that you really need to do is to read history and to read the Bible. And you find out that what I'm telling you is the truth. Next week we're going to come back and we'll hit you up with another one that you may not be too familiar with. It's not found, well you are familiar with it, it's not found in the Bible. And we'll talk about that when we come, next, come back next week. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the time that we've had uh, to look into your word tonight. And Lord, it is, our, it is our purpose here not to just simply criticize people, not to be angry with people. Um, our real purpose is to lead people to the truth and understand what is the theology behind all of this? What do we need to do? How do we need to correct things? How do we need to get back to teaching things like our Baptist forefathers believe, things that are taught in the scriptures. Lord, more than all, more than anything, we want to be right about what we teach. And so we're willing to tackle the practices of anybody, no matter who they are, and check out to see if they line up with the Bible. And we invite anybody to do the same to us, to any of our preaching, check it out, see if it lines up with the Bible. That's the most important thing. Your word is truth. Thank you, Lord, for the time tonight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Rohnert Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.